Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It's been a little bit since the trade deadline passed, so now that we have the benefit of a small bit of hindsight, I wanted to talk about the trade deadline that just passed, one of the busier trade deadlines in the last few years. I'm here today with Jeremy Stevens. Jeremy, how are you? Uh, I feel like Cleveland. I'm three years younger today. <laughs> Cleveland's a lot more than three years younger, but before we can get to Cleveland being a lot younger, let's actually start with a couple of the trades that happened before the deadline. And the biggest of those pre-deadline trades might honestly have been the biggest trade of trade deadline season. The Los Angeles Clippers, seven months after faux retiring Blake Griffin's jersey in this massive ceremony as a part of trying to convince him to resign on a five-year, $173 million extension. Didn't even wait a year before the guy whose jersey they promised to retire after he was a lifelong clipper. They sent him away to the Detroit Pistons for Tobias Harris, Avery Bradley, and Boban Marjanovic, along with a first-round pick. The Clippers also sent back Willie Reed and Bryce Johnson, both of whom have been moved now in separate deals closer to the trade deadline itself. But what were your thoughts on the blockbuster Blake Griffin trade? Um, I'm actually going to start on the Detroit side of it because I'm surprised that um, Tobias Harris got moved only because he looked like an all-star for three months. And I know those three months are well over, but when you're kind of treadmilling it like uh, Detroit is, I'd be surprised to see them move a piece like that. Avery Bradley never really got his footing there. And it seems like the kind of vibe about that was they were trying to run like an entire NBA offense through him, which they should have never been doing. But so it's kind of a kind of a 50-50 made sense and sort of didn't. I thought that this was almost a desperation move by Stan Van Gundy because the Pistons were out of playoff contention at the time they made this move. And Stan, as both head executive and head coach, had a pretty strong motivation to try and make the roster better. And I'm sure that there was some pressure from ownership to try and find a way to sell tickets in their brand new building, which if you see any Pistons games on League Pass, you will notice there aren't many of those seats sold in their new arena in downtown Detroit. This was a splashy move. In terms of it making sense for the Pistons, I thought it was a worthwhile gamble for them because they're never going to get a player of peak Blake Griffin's caliber in free agency. So really the only way they were going to get this kind of player was either by getting extraordinarily lucky in the draft or by trading for him. And they went with the latter of those options. And quite frankly, if the trade works out, Stan Van Gundy might still be around by the time Blake Griffin's contract runs out. And if it doesn't work, he is long gone from there anyway. So I thought it was a worthwhile risk for the Pistons, especially since the only player that they really gave up that was worth anything to them was Tobias Harris. And his contract expires after next year, whereas they've got Griffin locked up for quite a while, which is both a positive and a negative. But I think if you're the Pistons and just trying to make the team look pretty in the new arena, you weren't really going to do much better than that. How many coach GMs do we have left? Is it just Stan? I think it might just be Stan. Doc had his removed. Mike Budenholzer also had his powers removed. Because I knew it was Stan and Doc, yeah. Stan might be the last one now and the last one ever. Thibodeau. Thibodeau's still got it. 
Oh, Tibbs. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder how many knees are going to break before he loses that privilege. Well, they're considering bringing back <laughs> Derrick Rose. So, you know, that's two broken Cut knees it. right there. It's comical. I like your reasoning. I just can't get over that the Clippers went through so much trouble to keep a team together when they should have blown the team up and then they blew the team up. Uh, they, they just did it two years too late. So we, we go through this thing every summer where it's like, well, basketball is a business, right? Like after the Isaiah Thomas type trades. So if we're, if we're still like on that just never ending loop, this is just terrible business, right? I mean, I think it's terrible business in the sense that the Clippers shanked Blake Griffin almost as badly as Danny Ainge shanked Isaiah Thomas. But more to the point, what I really... Danny's vindicated, by the way. Oh, Danny's completely vindicated. <laughs> I mean, he was... <laughs> He's on, Thomas is on the Lakers. That's extra brutal. But the thing about this trade for the Clippers that I just don't understand is that they got one future asset, which is Detroit's first round pick, which is probably going to be somewhere in the 10 to 15 range. Avery Bradley's an expiring contract. Tobias Harris expires after next year. They didn't get any young players with upside. If you're going to blow up the team and trade Blake Griffin, first of all, they should have you know traded some of their other assets, which we'll get to later in the podcast. But if you are going to send away Blake Griffin and start over, I feel like you should at least get some more valuable young pieces beyond... Detroit's first. Maybe there just wasn't that kind of market for Blake Griffin because of his new contract, but this deal just doesn't really make all that much sense to me in the context of the Clippers and especially in the context of the rest of what they did around trade deadline season. I got one more thing for this because it feels like it it should have been contingent on this, but it ended up not mattering really. But uh, the Clippers recommitted to Lou Williams. So not Blake Griffin, but they recommitted to Lou Williams. I mean, that one makes a lot more sense, though, because they got Lou Williams on a three-year, $24 million deal, and the last year is only partially guaranteed. That's less than the mid-level exception. But is this team blowing up or not? It looks like they aren't, and that's iffy. They should. (laughs) They should have, I think, is more relevant, because now they can't get anything for DeAndre anyway, because unless he opts into that player option, he can just walk this summer. He should. Lou Williams' extension, I get only in the sense that even if you do decide to blow it up, you might as well have him around at that kind of price because it's not really hurting you to have him around at that kind of price. But the rest of their moves, which we will certainly get into later because they don't really exist, it was baffling that they didn't do anything besides trade Blake Griffin. But let's move on to the other two trades pre the actual trade deadline. We'll get into this more later, and we've already teased it about 74 times, so clearly this should be exciting. But the deals that didn't get done, what does shock me is that the only players that got first-round picks in their trades this year were Blake Griffin and Nikola Miritich. Miritich was sent to the New Orleans Pelicans along with a second-round pick. In return, the Bulls got back former Bull Omer Ashik and Jameer Nelson, Tony Allen, and the Pelicans' first-round pick. And the fact that a couple of the players that we haven't mentioned yet were not able to be traded for first-round picks, yet the Bulls actually got a pretty solid first-round pick in the Pelicans' first-rounder, pretty surprising to me. 
this I, I feel like this was almost really great for both sides because the the bulls are just the bulls are tanking it the right way. You just got to cash in on value on whoever you can cash in on. The thing with the Pelicans is they really needed a wing, and Miritich isn't really a wing, but he can shoot. So I think I think that's that's good enough. The problem is I think the Demarcus Cousins injury just kind of sabotages their whole their whole game plan that was already kind of all it's it's like double sabotage now because they have all this money in Drew Holiday. So I like it. I, I think they did the right thing. It's just I don't I don't think it's gonna pan out for them. Um, and Chicago got a pick, and that's all you can really ask for, I think. And they they like waved. I think they waved Tony Allen, so they just like got some money off and all that. So it's good on both sides. It's just not gonna work out for the Pelicans, I don't think. That's probably the first time that anyone has complimented a Gar Foreman move in the last five years. So props to you, Gar Foreman. <laughs> yeah, for once. The other pre-deadline trade, the Knicks sent Willie Hernan Gomez to the Charlotte Hornets in return for Johnny O'Brien and two second round picks. The most interesting thing to me about this trade was that it happened within 12 hours of the Kristaps Porzingis injury. So just as Hernan Gomez was finally about to get some minutes for this Knicks team, they ship him off to another team that has a massive logjam at center that doesn't look like it's going to clear out anytime soon. It's true, but it's it's very it's very Knicks because like they're they're playing like Jarrett Jack all these minutes over um, Neil Aquina, and yeah, I, my notes are basically exactly what you just said. Is Porzingis is hurt? Uh, Joakim Noah is is vacationing in the Bahamas probably. Um, and then they just have this center. I did a little bit of digging to try to figure out why they wouldn't like Hernan Gomez. The only thing I could really come up with was supposedly plays no defense. But if you can get buckets in the NBA, which I know he can do, I feel like he got a spot. Um, if, if people are trying to get like Jaleel Okafor of all players into a rotation, I see no reason that Hernan Gomez shouldn't be. Um, but I, I, you really just can't get a read on the Knicks anymore. I don't know what they're going for. And now their best players hurt. So now I really don't know what they're going for. Um, it, it seems like it, th- there's like three or four guys shipped out at this deadline who it seems like teams just sort of gave up on who they didn't need to. So that's 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 where I am with that. You said you can't understand the Knicks anymore as if anyone in basketball has been able to understand the Knicks since James Dolan took over. They had a path and then they strayed from it like 30 seconds after. They got Phil, they got Mello, and they got young players. That's a game plan and it's gone. <laughs> it's already gone. Well, that's kind of how the Knicks operate. But anyway, let's move on from the trades that happened prior to the deadline day and talk about deadline day itself, which is almost unquestionably the most active trade deadline day of this decade so far. And the major player, kind of surprisingly, but also very much not surprisingly at all, the reigning Eastern Conference champion Cleveland Cavaliers, who completely blew up their roster, basically traded everybody that wasn't in the starting lineup and someone who was in the starting lineup. Their first big trade of the day was Larry Nance and Jordan Clarkson in return for Isaiah Thomas, Channing Frye, and when I first saw this trade, it looked like the kind of trade that might work out pretty well for both sides. But what really struck me about it is that this is an excellent trade for the Lakers because they've been trying to get off Jordan Clarkson's salary almost since the moment they signed him to that contract. 
And instead of having to give up a first round pick to escape that contract, they managed to get one in return, which is truly remarkable. I'm a pretty big fan of Larry Nance Jr. I think he will be an excellent Cavalier, especially since he's the most athletic player on that team with the possible exception of LeBron. But honestly, Larry can jump out of the house. Larry is an exceptional athlete who's he can jump out of the building and he will change this team defensively. And we've already seen it in the first game, changing this team defensively, being the kind of player that Tristan Thompson was supposed to be, but very clearly isn't now. This was an all right move, I think, from the Cavs perspective, because trading a first round pick that wasn't the Brooklyn pick is a win for them. And Clarkson isn't as bad of a salary if you're looking at it from the perspective that the Cavs probably are looking at it, which is they have to win this year. Otherwise, the whole franchise is basically done. So in that sense, I thought it was a decent move for the Cavs. But the Lakers, I think, are the big winner in this trade. I think the Lakers are the big winner, too, because it it almost feels like the modern NBA is just like half the league's trying to get out of like terrible contracts. And I think you hit the nail on the head with Nance. I really wanted the Celtics to get in on Nance. And there were there were rumors a while back that they were trying to pitch um, Avery Bradley to get him because Nance is he's a hustle guy and he's not a stats guy. And as a Celtics fan, we like our hustle guys. And also as a Celtics fan, we're kind of like fiends for draft picks. So that's the first thing I um, I kind of zoned in on with this trade is Cleveland's giving up picks again. And... I, I just can't get it out of my head that they they effectively this kind of encapsulates all three trades, which I know we'll get through, but they they've effectively traded Kyrie Irving just for different role players now, and they gave up more picks. So I like Nance. Uh I like Clarkson as just some wild run and gun bench guy who's eventually gonna shoot one of fifteen and make Sports Center for that. Um but th- this I just see it all as like an extension of the Kyrie trade where they're giving up more draft picks. So Cleveland's going to be better in the short term. I don't know if they're good enough. Um, but if, if I'm going to go more like glass half full for Cleveland, gave up a pick, got Nance, I like it. The thing about the Thomas trade side of it, though, is that that was already a sunk cost. That had already happened. Isaiah had already floundered pretty spectacularly in Cleveland, both in terms of his play and in terms of his locker room comments, which... Probably after the first of those interviews, as someone who's been a huge fan of Isaiah Thomas for a very long time, I just wanted him to stop, just stop talking, just stop saying anything. (laughs) But he kept talking and it kept looking more and more like it was just a chemistry disaster. And the moment when LeBron hit that game winner and basically congratulated and fist bumped literally every single person on the team other than Isaiah Thomas, like, this is, this is bad. And... Isaiah looked much better in his first game with the Lakers than he had at any point in the season for the Cavs. So maybe this is one of those trades where the locker room just didn't work out. And purely from a personality perspective, the Cavs might have gotten a lot better. But the real way in which the Cavs got a lot better was the second trade. And I thought the first deal was okay, maybe somewhere like a C plus, B minus if I had to put a trade grade on it. The three-way deal that they swung between the Jazz, the Kings, and themselves, I can't see in any other way other than a massive, massive victory for the Cavaliers. They got rid of the three worst shooters on the team, Shumpert, Jay Crowder, and Derrick Rose, 
And in return, they got back Rodney Hood and George Hill. And George Hill will get $20 million next year. That isn't great for Cleveland. But again, similar to the Lakers trade, they have to think about being the best that they can possibly be for this season to cling on to the desperate, desperate hope that LeBron James will forget that Dan Gilbert owns the team and decide to stick around in Cleveland. And from that perspective, this trade was incredible for the team. If IT was a locker room problem, Jay Crowder probably fell into a similar boat. And the fact that he immediately said how much more he was enjoying being in Utah within days of being traded kind of says a lot in that regard. But the Cavs sent away players that were contributing absolutely nothing to the team. And in return, they got George Hill at the absolute nadir of his value because now that he's out of Sacramento, he might actually try on the defensive end. And Rodney Hood is someone who is undervalued mostly because of his injury history. And if he gets hurt, this trade will probably look pretty bad for Cleveland. But if he stays healthy, they upgraded massively, both in terms of athleticism overall between the two trades, but also in terms of defense. And Hood isn't a great defender, but he's certainly a lot better than Isaiah Thomas, and he can really play. So this three-team deal was just huge for Cleveland, and I might not have thought of them as the winners of the trade deadline if they'd only made the Lakers trade. But after this one, big, big move for the Cavs. Yeah. My favorite part of this trade is that Jay Crowder and Jonas Cherubko are teammates again, and they're my favorite Celtics ever. Um, the The good part of this trade, if especially if you're Cleveland, is that Rodney Hood is a shooter. And I'm glad you brought up the injury thing, because I was just thinking, I, I actually doubt he gets injured now because we're on this like, we're back to the back to the basics, sort of with what Miami did. Is like, hey, it turns out you just sur- you surround LeBron with shooters and you win every game. Uh, you had old man Ray Allen, you had old man Shane Battier. That team, I don't know how old that team was compared to the the team they just got rid of, but those guys never got hurt. Um, so so Hood's just that guy now in the corner. I don't know. He he obviously doesn't defend like Battier, but that's. That's kind of the LeBron effect is I think guys stay in good health because your goal or I guess your role is just to shoot. Um, as far as George Hill, again, I, I, I just can't get over that. It's too much money. Um, but and I also still I know I'm like repeating myself, but it's like role players for Kyrie Irving, which I can't get over. But um, yeah, th- this trade is is the real probably a bigger deal than the Lakers trade just because you got actual, I guess, on paper production, if you want to call it that. Um, as much as I like Larry Nance, he's, he's all hustle. These guys, they just shoot, um, which is, is kind of like the ideal guys to set up around LeBron. So it'll work out. Um, we'll need a few more games to see if they're, they're really contenders, but getting the worst shooters off their roster for better shooters is good. Taking on money is bad. Uh, if they don't win a championship, it's super bad, but we'll, you know, we kind of have to wait a little bit. The Cavs kind of have to win a championship this year to stay together though because I have a pretty strong feeling that if the Cavs don't win the title this year LeBron is gone and once LeBron is gone this team is going to be nothing but picking up the pieces anyway so maybe it doesn't really matter all that much if they have a ton of bad money because they're just going to be a dumpster fire no matter how much bad money is on the books right let's also not forget that George Hill had the best year of his career last season 
So, yeah, it didn't work out in Sacramento, but as a Kings fan, he wasn't really trying all that hard, especially on the defensive end. And now he's certainly got every motivation to try as hard as possible for a team that's probably going to win the Eastern Conference now. I mean, it's hard to bet against LeBron James in any circumstance, but it was a lot easier to bet against LeBron James before these deadline moves. And it's tough for them that Kyrie Irving turned into role players, but they do still have that Brooklyn pick. And ultimately, they'd already made the Kyrie Irving trade by the time this trade deadline rolled around. It was a sunk cost for them, and they had to try and pick up the pieces as best they could. And shout out to Kobe Altman for making all this work at the trade deadline. There were reports before this that Dan Gilbert was running the team. They made competent moves at the trade deadline, so I can guarantee you that Dan Gilbert was not running the team on February 8th. But there is one more Cleveland trade that we should talk about, at least in passing. They sent Dwayne Wade back to the Miami Heat just in time for him to put on the number three Miami Vice jersey and get a standing ovation and probably boost Miami's merchandise sales by about 8,000%. Cleveland got back a 2024 protected second round pick, so basically nothing. This trade very much looked like the Cavs realizing that Dwayne Wade was not going to get any minutes after this deal and so just decided to send him home certainly get some cachet with LeBron since this is the one move that they did talk about with LeBron, according to reports before it was made. And I just like this move. I mean, no matter what happens to the Cavs this offseason, it is worth something, I think, that in a year kind of marked by two massive shankings by general managers. First, the Danny Ainge move, which made all kinds of sense. Then the Blake Griffin trade, which I'm still not entirely sold on. The Cavs look like a team that actually cares about their players. And the whole it's a business thing makes me think that probably doesn't matter as much as I'd like it to. But it was still nice for them to send Dwayne back to Miami when really they could have just kept him around and had him sit on the bench and just tell him to deal with it. I like that LeBron and Wade uh, became teammates again because they're friends. And I like that LeBron and Wade are not teammates anymore also because they're friends. Um, th- There was kind of a weird story to come out of this after where they were saying like Wade was a much bigger problem in the locker room than it was ever made up to be, which I don't know how much I buy into that because no one really said anything until he was gone. But um, those, those jerseys are sold out, man. So I don't think anybody wins. Well, for the however many jerseys they made that were instantly sold out. I'm sure those people are happy. And plus, they're going to make more of those. They better. I'm getting one. I mean, especially since the story behind this is that they're changing these Nike City jerseys every year. Miami's not going to top these Vice jerseys, so it was good that they got Dwayne Wade back this year when they could put him in one of those. But let's move on from the Cavaliers' complete roster remodeling and look at some of the other moves made on trade deadline day. And I wanted to start out with the three-team deal between the Nuggets, the Knicks, and the Mavericks. The Nuggets sent Emmanuel Moutier to the Knicks. They got Devin Harris from Dallas, and Doug McDermott from the Knicks went to Dallas. The Knicks also swapped second-rounders with the Mavericks, sort of a side portion of this deal. 
I get this move from every perspective except for the Knicks perspective, yep. which is usually the case in trades involving the Knicks. But the Nuggets desperately have needed a backup point guard since the moment they waived Jameer Nelson, which was low-key one of the stupidest moves of the season. They got Devin Harris, who is a competent backup point guard, and they sent away Emmanuel Moutier, who has had every possible chance to succeed with a team run by the best passing center maybe that the league has ever seen. If you're not going to succeed in that kind of environment, it's kind of iffy in my mind that you're going to succeed anywhere else. Moutier, in addition to floundering offensively for his entire career, also has the lowest defensive real plus minus among point guards in the entire league out of a sample size of 99. He is 99th. And it's hard to give up on a 21-year-old, especially a 21-year-old who is extraordinarily athletic and certainly was not considered a questionable pick when he was taken with the seventh overall pick in 2015. It's only the third year of his career, but he had so many chances in Denver and he failed every single one of those chances. It's hard to see him succeeding in New York. Yeah, well, it's just weird on both sides that, again, like I said earlier, there's like three or four guys that teams seem to give up on for no reason. So I feel like, you know, Moody is number two. Uh, but it, it's even weirder that it's the Knicks who have Moody, who we were just saying, they're already giving Jared Jack too many minutes over Neil Aquina. Now, now Moody just exists in New York. I don't know what they're going to do with him. Um, New York is, is not a destination for like reclamation projects in this league. Um, especially as a team just trying to dump everything they don't want and try to, maybe rebuild around Porzingis. Um, it's for the other pieces that moved. I'm a big Doug McDermott fan. Uh, he, he's one of those guys who's like 12 years old, but he's he looks like he's been in the league for a decade. Um, and, and like I said before, if you can, if you can shoot, you have a spot. So that guy can shoot. Um, and he, he's going to be restricted, right? McDermott. So Dallas could probably keep him. And then as far as Harris to Denver, I just, uh, you know, Denver already has a Harris and he's better. <laughs> Um, so I, I just, I, I don't, I don't feel very strongly about that. Um, but, but backups are good. Backups are especially good for the playoffs. So they got that. It, it's just, it's, it's like too many teams giving up on players for my, for my liking. Speaking of teams giving up on players, the Orlando Magic sent Alfred Payton to the Phoenix Suns for a second round pick. And as someone who has Alfred Payton on their Hashtag basketball fantasy team. In I have Alfred Payton on my fantasy team in the hashtag basketball league. I'm certainly pretty pleased that the Suns traded for him. This was the most confusing move among a deadline of confusing moves for me. And Payton's already lighting it up in Phoenix. The team desperately needed point guard help. And on the one hand, the Magic at least managed to get something for Alfred Payton because they were clearly not looking to re-sign him in restricted free agency. On the other hand, and granted it's only been two games, but there has been a consistent theme of the Orlando Magic giving up on players only for them to be far, far better once they left Orlando. You can look at Tobias Harris, you can look at Victor Oladipo, and maybe Payton's the next person in that trend. But... Even if the Magic weren't looking to re-sign Peyton, I'm surprised that his final price turned into just a second-round pick. And granted, it's going to be a good second-round pick because it's Memphis's second-round pick this year, but this move still confused me. 
the the thing I'm most concerned with is Frank Vogel's health. He looks like he's aged like 30 years coaching the Magic for two years. I I, I literally thought my phone bugged out when I when I saw like a notification for this deal, um, or that there was like a Woj typo. Could could they really? I, I mean, look, I don't I don't know the whole market for Alfred Payton. Could they really not get like two second round picks? For this kid, he's not bad. Look, I I trash Alfred Payton on Twitter all the time, but he's he's really not bad for a few points and a few assists and some rebounds. He he, you know, he's fine. Um, and and, and just it's it's really the context of of the Orlando Magic's history that makes us look so bad. Where like you said, it was Oladipo and a couple other players who end up being amazing when they're not wearing the Magic uniform. Um, I just can't believe they sold. This low, I mean, it, 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 the kid's not an all-star. He didn't, I mean, maybe he will be now. But um, I don't know how you sell this low on a high draft pick. Once you've invested the pick, I feel like you got to get more than a second or just ride it out. I don't I don't know what they're in a rush to do. Because this isn't even a rebuilding move. It's a, it's like a decent second round picks. Like the ceiling of a pick is you got a decent pick, right? If it's in the second round. So, no, I kind of at a loss for words. So since you're at a loss for words, let's move on to some of the smaller deadline deals and stop talking about how thoroughly the Suns robbed the Magic in this deal, or at least in both of our opinion. I can't believe a team got robbed by the Suns. <laughs> you kidding me? All right, go ahead. <laughs> the times are a change and if teams can get robbed by the Suns. <laughs> anyway, moving right along, Luke Babbitt is also joining Miami on a day of returns for famous Miami Heat players. Babbitt going to the Heat, Okara White going to the Hawks. The Hawks at least got something for Luke Babbitt, but as we'll get to later, I'm surprised that the Hawks didn't make more moves on deadline day, just trying to ship out basically anybody on the team that had any value. Yeah, that's 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 more the story here is that this is all that Atlanta came up with and and if I remember correctly from only a couple days ago, Bellinelli was bought out, which means Alfred Payton got a second round pick at this deadline and, and Bellinelli got nothing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Babbitt fell out of a bad rotation. If I, I don't think he's been playing much for Atlanta and or Carl White never plays for Miami. So I don't, it seems pretty inconsequential on that front. Moving on, the Pistons made a couple of moves on trade deadline day, sort of following up with the big, Blake Griffin deal. They traded Willie Reed for Jameer Nelson, which in a similar theme to the Devin Harris move, it's always useful to have backup point guards, especially given that the Pistons are going to be without Reggie Jackson for a while due to his injury, and they were never going to play Willie Reed anyway. They also traded Bryce Johnson, another person in the list of players that were never going to get to play in Detroit. And they got James Ennis for the Grizzlies along with Detroit sending a second round pick to the Grizzlies as well. So Johnson and a second round pick for James Ennis. I like both of those moves. I don't think they really move the needle all that much. But if you're Detroit and are on the outside looking in to the Eastern Conference playoff picture, and given that Van Gundy already traded for Blake Griffin, you're clearly gunning for the playoffs at this point. I feel like both of those moves are helpful on the margin. And ultimately, that's the kind of dealing you have to make when you're on the outside looking in. Yeah, I feel like 
every Eastern team right now thinks they can win a first round series. Um, Detroit needed another guard, and Detroit has another guard. Um, all I know about Ennis is he, he he was one of those rookies. He's not a rookie this year, but he's one of those guys that kind of came out swinging, but didn't really last. So I don't know. I like I like the Nelson deal. It's kind of ex- it's exactly what they needed. Ennis has been having a really good year in Memphis, actually, and he's not someone that stands out in the box score certainly, but he's an athletic wing that the Pistons have desperately needed this year. So helps in that regard, especially they needed an athletic wing forward type after sending Tobias Harris away. And I, I kind of just want to make the comparison that um, I always feel like each conference, like each team in each conference kind of has like an equal and opposite team in the other conference. So the, the Pistons to me are kind of feeling like the Pelicans of the East where they're kind of front court heavy and they just, they really need wings and they just traded one, which is fine because they got Blake Griffin, but they're, they're just kind of like they're, they're trending on like elite treadmill team. So if every team in each conference has a mirror, does that make the Sacramento Kings the main red claws? I, <laughs> I guess I would have said like the Knicks, but uh, nah. Hey, the red claws have um, Anthony Bennett. So we're 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 high rollers in Maine. Paying too much for failed lottery picks is definitely king's territory, so let's go with that one. Anyway, moving right along, the Portland Trailblazers sold Noah Vonley in essence to the Chicago Bulls. Basically, the Blazers have been desperate to get under the luxury tax since they signed all those terrible contracts in the famed summer of 2016. And they managed to shed Alan Crabb before the season in a move that I actually think made sense for both teams. And now with just a little bit of room to go, they ship Von Layoff to get under the tax. This is a fine move for both sides. I mean, the Trailblazers clearly weren't looking to get anything back. And the Bulls at least take a chance on Von Ley, who's been decent enough that it was worth it for them to absorb his salary in a year where doesn't really matter how much salary they absorb. Yeah, obviously Portland just like getting rid of money is is almost all upside for them. But I I do want to note that I think Vonley is highly drafted player number three, who is essentially kind of abandoned by the team that drafted them in like this year alone. The thing about Vonley though is that this isn't even the first time that he's been abandoned by a team as a young player. Did he start somewhere else? Yeah, Vonley was originally a member of the Charlotte Hornets when they took him with the ninth overall pick in the 2014 draft and they traded him to Portland that offseason. Oh. After he shot 39% from the floor his rookie year in 25 games. So there you go. It's an extremely Charlotte pick. Extraordinarily Charlotte pick. Anyway, almost at the end of the trade deadline moves that actually happened, the... New Orleans Pelicans sent Dante Cunningham to the Brooklyn Nets for Rashad Vaughn. Cunningham is a decently useful defensive player. Rashad Vaughn was drafted by the Bucs because Jeff Schwartz was his agent and the Bucs are the Bucs. So I saw this as a win for Brooklyn because Rashad Vaughn is pretty useless and Dante Cunningham at least has some value. But hey, who knows? Maybe he'll turn it around in New Orleans. Yeah, I'm pretty underwhelmed watching um Cunningham but the thing is there there's like no team in this league that needed wings more badly than the Pelicans needed wings and I I like I lost my mind 
knowing that Gerald Green was a free agent for like two months to start the season. And, uh, and, and now we fast forward to now and the Pelicans are trading wings. I don't get it. The Nets are making a ton of good moves, so that's cool. The thing is, though, Cunningham is more of a pure power forward than a wing player at this point. And Rashad is at least theoretically a wing player, so maybe that's why. That's Yeah, that's fair. I just... I, in in watching the few Pelicans games, like they they kind of just stuck Cunningham in the corner. They kind of Kevin loved him, so I, I kind of figured they would use him as a as like one of those super long wings, Batum without all the the you know the good basketball skills or the five year hundred twenty million dollar contract. Yeah, you know. Next up, the Washington Wizards sent Sheldon Mack to the Atlanta Hawks along with some cash in return for a heavily, heavily protected 2019 second round pick that probably isn't going to convey. Mac has been injured this year and the Hawks waived him immediately after the trade. So this was just the Wizards shedding a little salary. But it's unfortunate because Mac looked like a really solid player for the Wizards last year. And then he got injured in the preseason, which is just the most brutal time to get injured. But hopefully he'll be able to make a recovery and find his way somewhere else. Yeah, I feel like Mac was a was a Celtics summer league guy two or three years ago, and he looked really good, and that that got him an NBA job. So kind of kind of unfortunate that it's this kind of trade that he's involved in now. But yeah, you know, we'll see. And last and certainly least, the Sacramento Kings sent Malachi Richardson to the Toronto Raptors in return for Bruno Caboclo. Malachi had barely played at all in his second year in Sacramento after having not played much as a rookie. That being said, the Kings got Bruno Caboclo in return, so that automatically seems like a loss. Because as fellow hashtag basketball writer Jordan Kligman is fond of saying, Bruno Caboclo is not an NBA player at all. And... He and I have argued about this. I thought it was a decent draft pick at the time because if you're the Raptors and you're picking 20th, you might as well swing for the fences. Sometimes when you swing for the fences, you strike out swinging on the third pitch and look foolish. And that's pretty much what happened with Caboclo. It is stunning to me that another team in the NBA decided to take a chance on him after he has completely flamed out in Toronto. But of course, if any team was going to do it, it was going to be the Sacramento Kings. This, this trade is the equivalent of like, you, you you get like soggy French fries with your meal and you're like, I don't want to throw these out, but I don't want to eat them. But maybe I can give them to my friend and like he got potato chips, so I'll just eat his like stale potato chips. That's what this deal was. My favorite part of this deal, and by favorite, I mean most infuriating part of this deal <laughs> The Kings had an extra player on their roster. They had too many rostered players after the three-way deal with the Cavs and the Jazz, and they had to waive someone before the Joe Johnson buyout, and they waived 2016 13th overall pick Yorgos Papianis. And the funniest part to me about Papianis ever having been in Sacramento is that he was theoretically the most valuable piece that the Kings received when they traded the number eight overall pick, which became Marquise Chris to the Phoenix Suns for pick number 13, 
pick number 28, and the rights to Bogdan Bogdanovich. Bogdan has probably been the Kings' best player this season. He's certainly the best player that was sent in this deal. And the 28th pick turned into Scalabissier, who I'm also a huge fan of. This trade could have been a massive win for Vladi Divac, but of course he screwed it up by taking Papianis with the 13th overall pick. And Papianis is very, very similar to Bruno Caboclo in that they were both drafted for upside and neither of them is an NBA player. So there you go. Waving Papianis to get Caboclo is just the most King's move I can think of. Yeah, it, all I know about this is um, a couple years ago when the Kings drafted like 17 centers, we got the classic DeMarcus Cousins tweet, which I think read, Lord, give me strength. Lord, give me the strength. And he said, oh, no, it was hot yoga. I <laughs> definitely wasn't talking about the Kings drafting a guy who would have been lucky to go in the second round, who's also a center, number 13 overall. Couldn't have been that, no. That was the barbershop tweet before this year's barbershop tweet. Um, so that's that's funny. But that's that's all I got for this. It's funny in the saddest possible way, which is basically the definition of Kings fandom since 2004. Do you think we'll get a 30 for 30 on the Kings for like every all, all the wrong reasons? I don't think anybody will care enough, honestly. Maybe it'll be like a 10 for 10. <laughs> 30 seconds for 30 seconds. It's going to be a commercial. <laughs> that's, how, that's how long he was, a, he was a, on the roster. That's certainly how long he was effective on the roster. Anyway, let's move from the trades that actually happened to the trades that didn't happen, the most shocking deals that did not get done. And since we talked about this at the start of the podcast, I want to circle back to this now. It makes zero sense to me at all that the Clippers did not try and trade DeAndre Jordan, or at least try harder than they seem to have tried to trade DeAndre Jordan, because... He is almost certainly going to decline his player option this offseason. And if he does, the Clippers, I'm willing to bet, are going to lose him for nothing because I don't see any reason why DeAndre Jordan would stay in Los Angeles as a member of the Clippers this offseason. Maybe he goes across the locker room to the Lakers, but I don't see any reason why he would want to remain a Clipper. And the fact that the Clippers traded Blake Griffin and then didn't do anything else is baffling to me. When the Blake Griffin trade happened, I wasn't so sure how I felt about it from the Clippers' perspective, but my thought on it was, well, this trade is going to make a lot more sense in the context of the other moves that they're surely going to make around trade deadline time. And instead, the trade makes even less sense in hindsight with the knowledge that the Clippers re-signed Lou Williams and didn't bother to find a DeAndre Jordan trade. Yeah, this is kind of an extension of the the Blake Griffin conversation where the the Clippers to me just look like they're committed to totally arbitrary players. I don't it it really doesn't make sense. Um which is funny because when the Blake Griffin trade went through, my whole Twitter feed was was like in in celebration that Jerry West is now managing the Clippers and not Doc Rivers and then it 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 never it never went beyond that. Um and I I I would agree with you that actually Jordan could be a, a fantastic fit in the Lakers. I don't know how long Brooke Lopez is there for, but if they've got all that space freed up, um, he would be the most realistic free agent who isn't Paul George. And if they could get him early, Paul George might even commit 
um, depending on, you know, if, if George signs an OKC. I have a feeling he doesn't, but we'll see. Um, that's kind of a kind of a side thought. The Clippers don't make sense anymore. They made sense for a little bit because at least they had good players, even if they were making weird moves the whole time. Now they're making weird moves, and their roster's not that good. So I couldn't even tell you the direction of this team anymore. I mean, the moves that they've made make it seem like there kind of isn't a direction. Like, Balmer wanted to try and make the playoffs this year, so they tried to get some players back in the Blake Griffin trade that would be useful this year, but they didn't really get anything in the way of future assets, and unless they opt to re-sign Tobias Harris for not the same kind of contract that Griffin would have gotten, but they're going to have to pay Tobias Harris for him to stick around. And either they let Harris walk after next year and they let DeAndre walk after this year, or maybe they just decide to build the team around DeAndre Jordan right before he enters his 30s. I don't really get it. But a move that I somehow understand less than the Clippers moves, because this was the most confounding part of the trade deadline, the Grizzlies did not trade Tyreek Evans. And that is just straight-up malpractice. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm holding my arms straight out. They sat him. They sat him. That is the, the most surefire. We're trading this guy. We're waiting for the best offer and whatever it is at the deadline. This guy's gone. And then they didn't do it. Um, supposedly, the Celtics offered two second rounders and Gershon Yabusele, who, who so far does not resemble an NBA player, but I can't imagine they got a better deal. At least it's like a super athletic something and two second rounders. So... I don't know why they sat him. I don't know what they expected. Um, even if, look, even if you're in this front office and you're not like a basketball savant, there's there's just so much content for you to read online. It's not it's not a deadline loaded with pieces moving around. So if you're going to sit the guy to trade him, you kind of got to know what to expect back. And they didn't get that. I just, I don't know. It, it, it seems like they unplugged their internet and then just like were waiting for smoke signals to trade this guy, and then they didn't trade him. The only, and I mean only, justification I can think of for this move is that the Grizzlies saw what Lou Williams signed for and thought, well, if that's what Lou Williams is going for, we can get Tyreek Evans for nothing. And hey, he went to college in Memphis. Maybe he'll want to stick around. But I don't think there's any chance that he stays in Memphis. And they basically decided... We would rather lose him for absolutely nothing than suffer the indignity of not getting a first-round pick for him. And again, if that's the way your front office is thinking, they need to be all the way gone. And Chris Wallace has not exactly done an excellent job as GM of the Grizzlies. And this, to me, really seems like a fireable offense. Yeah, the thing, like, what's kind of getting swept under there is like, Lou Williams is an L.A. kind of guy. He's got, supposedly he's got two girlfriends, got all the nightlife out there. He's chilling, man. He'll he'll take a few million. He'll hang out in L.A. But do we know if Tyreek Evans is a Memphis kind of guy? It's just, it's just colder, right? I mean, he did at least go to college there so they can at least pretend that, you know, he's got some deep and abiding love for Memphis. And if they pay him enough, maybe he'll just decide, hey, I've been successful for this team and... I've had some down years since my rookie campaign in Sacramento. Maybe I just want to stick somewhere that I know I can be good, but I don't see 
him doing that, especially since this Grizzlies team is falling apart and their front office has low-key been one of the three worst in the league in the last five years. And they've sort of made it to the playoffs anyway because they had Mike Conley and Marcus Gasol. But those guys are only getting older. And <laughs> do you really want to stick around for a team that decided to pay Chandler Parsons the max? Yeah, I they're 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 like I agree. They're kind of like undercover undercover terrible. And I'm trying to piece together how they made. They didn't just like make a good roster. They made one of the most cohesive rosters in terms of like the whole grit and grind thing with. Randolph and uh, and and Tony Allen. They had this whole lineup. Kind of reminded me of what the Celtics put together, and then the Celtics traded their whole team. So that's not an example anymore. But it they had a roster that really made sense. Um, and now they have a roster that blew up without them trading their all stars that they should trade but haven't traded that they can't trade because Mike Connolly makes way too much money. So it just it's a hot mess. And. Lastly, before we wrap up, we touched on this a bit earlier, but it does surprise me that some of the teams at the bottom of the standings didn't just try and get anything they could for some of their players with value. I'm surprised that the Hawks had to buy out Bellinelli, that they couldn't find someone who would at least give up a heavily protected second-round pick for him. The one that really surprises me, though, Wes Matthews has been decent for the Mavericks this year, and he could really contribute in the right situation. Maybe his contract is just too much money, but I'm a little surprised that the Mavericks didn't at least manage to extract some value from Wes Matthews because while he's a good player they don't really need him on a team that's clearly gunning for the bottom of the lottery at this point. So there's a, there's kind of a cool term I stumbled upon. I might've heard it on a podcast or saw it on Reddit. It's called the, the Noah trade clause. Have you heard of that? Oh yeah. <laughs> that's how I feel about Wes Matthews. I, I, I like, you know, brought up some stats. I'm like, Oh yeah, he's fine. And then you look at the contract. It's like, Oh geez. It's 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 hard. It, not only is it hard to move a lot of money, but it's it's it seems especially hard to move a lot of money right now after a bunch of teams already overpaid. Um, and you you can't like dupe the Celtics into taking that contract. I uh, certainly can't dupe. Well, maybe you can dupe the Spurs. They're overpaying some guys, but like a lot of contenders aren't really super buying in outside of Cleveland. A lot of contenders are just kind of chilling with what they got. So yeah, it's a lot of words just to say I think he makes way too much money. The difference is, though, that Joe Kim Noah's under contract for quite a bit longer. Wes Matthews has a player option for next season, and that's it. So really, if you're a contending team trading for him, you've only got to worry about the next year of that contract. You still got to make the money match, though, right, when you, when you trade for him? I mean, if you're a contender, you're going to need to because you're going to be above the salary cap if you're any kind of contender at this point. I guess a similar move would be trading for Courtney Lee, who makes slightly less money and has been slightly better than Wes Matthews has this season. But the Knicks didn't go for it, maybe because they're the Knicks. Certainly if I were any other team in the league, I would have been pushing really, really, really hard to try and find a trade that works for Courtney Lee because anytime you can trade with the New York Knicks, you got to go for it. Yeah, I think Lee would have been excellent for contenders, but I, I don't think New York can actually 
it, it's kind of a win-win as far as Courtney Lee goes. I kind of like the group they have. Um, they started losing a lot, even with Porzingis healthy. So, um, but you know, Courtney Lee as a mentor, as a contributor, as a uh, for a while looked like a guy who was helping push them to the playoffs, which they're not going to get to now. But I, I, you know, I thought he was a good fit with that group. Um, but at the same time, if you're going for like the Porzingis timeline, where you want to be really good when he's like 26, 27. You might be happier with a first round pick in a year or two, um, or, or like a developing first round pick than than Courtney Lee. So I think it works either way. Um, I looked up his contract too. He's thirty two years old and he signed through two thousand twenty, and he's making kind of a lot of money too. So it's it's hard to move, but I think it's fine either way for the Knicks. All right. Anything else before we wrap up? Um, it felt really busy, but it's like eighty percent Cavaliers. I don't know if that's consi- if that like qualifies as a big deadline. I mean, I think it qualifies just because the Cavs were objectively in trouble before the trade deadline, both from a personality standpoint and from a literally worst defense in the league standpoint. So even though there weren't all that many moves around the deadline, it was slightly more active than last year. I think it was nine deals last year and 12 deals this year on deadline day, but Either way, it certainly seems big because the Cavs are always going to be one of the leading stories in the NBA if they have LeBron James on their roster and they made some big moves. Right. Um, there actually was one more thing I wanted to add. This this is sort of like a, a stance I've taken on, on Twitter and some of the things I've written that people have disagreed with because it's sort of an exaggeration. But I've been saying for a while now that the, the, the spending that went on in the summer of 2016 has effectively set the entire NBA back five years, which is why you get deadlines like this. Nobody can move contracts. The, the the tankers can't go full tank, and sometimes teams bordering on contending can't get there because there's so much money wrapped up in, whether it's Mozgov who got moved, there's Luol Dang. We talked about the NOAA trade clause, which applies to like a dozen more players. Um, it's It's kind of served as a foundation right now where like, the rich got richer. I think it's part of why the Celtics are so good because they didn't they didn't take on any weird contracts. They've they've actually had just like a colossal amount of expirings come off like before their their current the current iteration of this team. Um, so we're, we're we're sort of like seeing the after effects of like the most absurd spending in basketball ever. So that's that's kind of kind of why it looks like how it looks right now. The 2016 summer also ruined the NBA because it allowed the 73-win Golden State Warriors to sign Kevin Durant in free agency. So really, the vast majority of the problems, the vast majority of the problems in the NBA right now can be blamed on the summer of 2016. Isn't there some like new rule about how money's like managed with contracts because of Kevin Durant? The designated veteran player extension came to be the Kevin Durant rule because it was seen as a reaction to a wave of veteran superstars leaving their teams in free agency, capped off by Durant's departure from the Thunder to the Golden State Warriors 2016. 2011 CBA allowed all of the teams that were trying to lure Durant to offer him the same initial salary of $26.5 million for a veteran player to sign such an extension. He must be answering, oh, this, this is the rule, I think, to protect, to try to help teams like maintain... Like like the Gordon Hayward thing. They could offer him more money because they drafted him. Yep. The Supermax, which was also why the Kings traded DeMarcus Cousins. <laughs> so that, that rule's working out real great so far. This rule still stinks because it just gives teams opportunities to spend 
more. Now we have Joella and B making like a, a hundred billion dollars over the next five years. So yeah, thanks, thanks, Kevin. Thanks. All right. Well, he is Jeremy Stevens. You can find him on Twitter at Taco House, T-A-C-O underscore H-A-U-S. And you can find his work on the hashtag basketball website. You can also find my work on the hashtag basketball website. And you can find me on Twitter, N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch with any feedback, feel free to get in touch with me via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.